You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Today, we're going to talk about a medical diagnosis that's literally hard to swallow. When children have problems in their esophagus or moving food through their gastrointestinal tract, receiving an accurate diagnosis can be a challenge. But that's where some special technology comes in. It's called EndoFlip, and you can find it at Mercy One Children's Hospital. Today, we're joined by Dr. Daniel DeMeo to tell us all about EndoFlip. Mercy One Children's Hospital is proud to be the first pediatric hospital in Iowa to utilize the Medtronic EndoFlip, impedance planetary system, a minimally invasive tool for diagnosing swallowing issues. Dr. Daniel DeMeo, a pediatric gastroenterologist with the Mercy One Des Moines Pediatric Specialty Care, joins me today to explain EndoFlip and how it can help children with swallowing problems. Thank you, Dr. DeMeo, for joining us. Thanks, Leanne. It's great to be with you. Hopefully, I can be of some assistance and give some information on this really cool technology we have at Mercy One. Great. I think the first thing that people are probably thinking is, what exactly is EndoFlip and what does the name EndoFlip stand for? So, to start, EndoFlip stands for, the endo part stands for endoluminal, and then the FLIP stands for Functional Lumen Imaging Probe. So it's essentially uh, a technique that we use in uh, endoscopy to uh, measure how well the esophagus can contract almost uh, the pliability or stiffness of the esophageal wall, and it can measure um, to some degree uh, motility. It uses pressures and volumes um, and gets this equation using those uh, parameters, and you can get a measure of uh, something called distensibility. So someone would typically have some kind of a swallowing condition that then they might come to you to see. But can you tell us a little bit more about like what kind of swallowing conditions would benefit from this test? Sure. So my partners and I, we, we typically would order this study if somebody comes in with a, a, the main complaint of swallowing difficulties. So some things you may see is either painful swallowing or they feel like food gets stuck when they swallow or it's hard for food to go down. Sometimes chronic uh, GERD, which is acid reflux disease, that may not be improving with typical standard antacid treatments. Um, sometimes chest pain, if we think the pain is related more to the esophagus and not something um, non-GI. Obviously, there's other reasons for chest pain, but if we think it's more esophageal related, we could do it for, um, for that indication as well. Okay, that's great. Are there specific symptoms that um, parents should be on the lookout for? Yeah, so I think any, any parent of a child who, uh, if the child's complaining of some difficulty swallowing, it could be as obvious as they say food gets stuck or they have a hard time swallowing um, or chronic acid reflux where they may have regurgitation into their mouth that they're, that they're re-swallowing. Um, as I mentioned, chest pain. Some of the more subtle symptoms might be if they find that their child is just taking forever to eat. In other words, they're chewing, chewing, chewing almost until they chew it into a, like a liquid consistency or they're constantly drinking, drinking, and they're like the last ones to finish uh, their meal and they just take a long time. So that could be an indication of a, of a swallowing issue or uh, something in the esophagus that, that that symptom is called dysphagia. So those are things to watch for. Those are probably the most common. Kids who have what's called eosinophilic esophagitis can present in this way as well. And this is a good study to, 
to help check the motility of the esophagus in those uh, patients. Okay, great. So you actually, you bring up an excellent question as kind of a follow-up question. Um, you talked about how that a child may chew and chew, you know, and be the last one at the table or something, but how would I know as a parent, if my child is, you know, having these swallowing issues that need to be actually looked at by a doctor versus something that may improve as they age? So there are a lot of um, there are a lot of instances, especially in infants, where they're learning how to manipulate and, and chew and swallow solid foods, different textures that is commonly seen as behavior, and they they eventually outgrow it. I think um, beyond that, you know, that one and a half year of age, usually those symptoms or that that difficulty with learning new textures should have should have resolved by that point, in my opinion. So if you know, by a year and a half, kids are still having a difficult time going through the different stages of baby food and, and, and table food. Um, that would might be an indication to at least see your pediatrician and consider a referral. Once you're past that age, a lot of these patients that we do with endoflip bond, they are, they have a history of eating fine. And they've most of their young childhood, they've done fine. And this is a new presentation, something that came out of the blue and started up. So usually when that happens, you think, maybe there's something going on with the esophagus versus an infant who's just learning how to transition from breast milk or formula to purees and then from purees to a little bit of a chunkier consistency. That That's common for those infants to have a different, more difficult time. But again, that should, they should outgrow that type of uh, behavior, you know, by, you know, 18 months of life, in my opinion. Okay. If it's severe, then they're really not progressing at all. If, if it's slowly, that's one thing, but if they're really not progressing at all beyond liquids, um, I, I, those infants and, and toddlers should definitely be at least seen by their pediatrician and consider a GI referral. Can you explain how the endoflip test is performed? Yeah, so it's during endoscopy. So usually um, we'll bring the children into our endoscopy unit and we, we do an, an upper an upper scope or endoscopy first where we go down with, with the instrument, the, the scope, and look at all the different parts of the upper GI tract, the esophagus, the stomach, and in the first part of the small intestine. Um, and then when that part's done, we then pass the, we pass the balloon catheter, the endoflip catheter down, and then we inflate the balloon and uh, the uh, balloons filled to different volumes. And then looking on a monitor, we get a 2D and a 3D representation of the esophagus. So we can measure um, pressures and contractility across those little electrodes in the, uh, inside the catheter uh, of the balloon. And then once we're done with that, we once we feel we have an adequate study, we pull the the catheter with the balloon out, and then we'll finish the upper part of the upper scope, which is usually doing our biopsies afterwards. So, what are some of the benefits of using the endoflip versus using a previous diagnostics tool or test? So, for to check for esophageal motility, it's a little bit difficult um, in children before endoflip um, to do something called high resolution esophageal manometry. Um, requires a patient to be awake and to follow instructions on how to swallow with a catheter in place. So that's obviously very difficult, for, I think, for anybody, adults, but especially children to have to do. So in this, with endoflip, although it's not technically a true motility study, like a high-resolution esophageal motility study, you do get um, a, a decent, at least, screening tool for esophageal motility. Um, and these patients, are, they come in under, endos, uh, under anesthesia, so they're asleep. They do not have to cooperate. Um, for the procedure, they're asleep, and it's all done um, in the endoscopy unit, and we don't have to rely on them to, um, to cooperate. And they don't have to worry about having a catheter in their esophagus. They're, they're just out. Um, so in that sense, it, it's a good tool. And then if you have something that's 
that's suggestive of a, of a true esophageal motility issue and you think they need high-resolution resolu- high esophageal manometry, then we can try to refer them to um, a center that does that. Um, but again, it's all about are they going to be able to cooperate with that particular study, um, which is a little more difficult. Prior to this, we didn't really have other great motility studies um, in kids. You, you could do upper GI x-rays where they would drink contrast, and you can get a sense that things are moving okay, or at least there's no obstruction, um, mm-hmm. but you don't get a good assessment of function of the esophagus. And then just the, doing just the scope by itself, um, that is more to look at the mucosa and looking for inflammation, but you don't get a good sense of function of the upper GI tract with, the, um, with just the endoscopy. Okay, great. And that makes a lot of sense because it seems like um, you're kind of talking about uh, potentially younger kids as well, which have (laughs) less ability to cooperate. And how long does it typically take for the endoflip test? So the typical um, standard upper endoscopy without doing endoflip is usually about five minutes. There's probably a total of 10 or 15 minutes of anesthesia time once you get them to sleep. And then once they're woken up, the actual scope time is probably about five to seven minutes. Doing the endo flip, that can add an extra maybe five minutes to it. So I think total time, um, endoscopy, endo flip, and then finishing with biopsies is probably, I'm going to guess, educated guess 15 minutes. My previous patients, I think that's probably a, a pretty um, safe, sound estimate, 15 minutes total. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, um, it doesn't add that much extra time to the, to the actual uh, upper scope procedure. And you did mention that the child does need to be under anesthesia, um, but is this an outpatient procedure? It is done as an outpatient procedure. Um, they come in uh, to the endoscopy unit. Um, the only prep for the procedure is they can't have anything to eat or drink after midnight the night before. Um, it's done uh, with our general anesthesiologist, uh, who is part of our sedation team, our pediatric sedation team. Um, one of the caveats for sedation for this is that you you want to try to avoid um, gas sedation. So they use more IV um, sedation, like something called propofol. Um, sometimes the inhalational gas can affect how well the esophagus um, would contract. So you want to avoid gas as much as possible at all costs. If you can just use more IV sedation, which doesn't really matter to the patient. They're asleep either way and um, they're comfortable and they don't remember or feel anything, but yet they go home. Usually recovery when we're done is probably Within an hour, they're waking up and going home and having whatever they want uh, for food afterwards. Are there any risks associated with the endoflip test? Um, not specifically with the endoflip. Some people might wonder, well, you're inflating a balloon. Does that increase your risk of perforation? But the balloon is very, I mean, it, it's even when it's inflated, it's very like squishy and, and pliable. Um, so in my opinion, and the studies have shown, there's really no increased risk of perforation with the endoflip. Um, anytime you do an upper endoscopy, there's always a small risk of uh, perforation. But again, that's very, uh, very, very low. And we talk to families about that. Um, but again, I don't think the endoflip adds any extra risk to it. Um, there's always a risk of anesthesia that we talk to families about as part of any kind of procedure. But specifically to endoflip, um, I would say no, there is no increased risk. And I think um, our last question here, um, if I think my child has a swallowing issue, who do I contact first, their pediatrician or a gastroenterologist? Great question. So um, myself and my two partners, we are happy seeing self-referrals. Um, I, to us, it doesn't matter um, typically. 
Um, usually the issue would be more uh, of an insurance if the, if the family's insurance requires a referral. Some, that's something they need to check before they just call my office and want to get in as a self-referral. Um, in an ideal world, it's probably best to at least start with your pediatrician or family doctor just, just to be sure, you know, they don't think it's like, uh, like a swelling difficulty from, say, like a, a, a virus or strep throat or, you know, something that maybe just needs a little a little antacid ahead of time. So probably the safest and best um, would be to go through the pediatrician, but we're happy to see um, self-referrals as well. And they would just have to call our office. I don't know if that information will be as part of the podcast, but um, and uh, yeah, I would be happy to see anybody either self-referral or referred by their primary doctor. And we will make that information part of this podcast. Just check out the episode description. We've got a link to Dr. DeMeo and a link to find out more information about Indoflip. Well, let us know what you thought of this podcast in an email to podcast at mercyhealth.com or find us at mercyone.org slash podcast. There's a form you can fill out to send us your feedback and also find all of our episodes. Until next time, live your best life.